Galad. Lauren. Galad, how do you personally experience the metaverse? I rig up a cup and a wire that runs to another cup at my best friend's house across the street. That's it. That's it. That's the metaverse. All this talk from Mark Zuckerberg these past several months and all I needed was two cups and a string. Wow. And do we have fundamental human rights in the metaverse? Well, hard question to answer because it's all virtual. Virtual human rights? Possible. All right. Well, maybe it would be helpful if we first defined what the metaverse is. And I can't think of a better person to ask about this than the person we're about to have on the show. Let's do it. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired. And I'm Gilad Edelman. I'm also a senior writer at Wired. Today on the show, we have a very special guest. We're joined by Matthew Ball. Matthew is the former head of strategy at Amazon Studios. He has now joined the world of venture capital, and he gained a new level of notoriety when he published on the internet not long ago a nine-part series on the metaverse. And now he has a new book coming out on July 19th called the metaverse and how it will revolutionize everything. Matt, thanks for joining us on Wired's Gadget Lab. It's really my pleasure, thank you. Okay, so we're gonna get right into it. What is the metaverse in plain terms? In plain terms, we should think of it as a 3D version of the internet. Much like the internet, which is so called as a network of networks, it connects all different networks that choose to participate into some form of unified experience, managing continuity of your identity. You can link from the fourth paragraph in a Wired article to the second fold in a New York Times article. We're talking about building an interconnection network of 3D experiences. So what kinds of 3D experiences? Like if if I'm thinking about the internet that I know, it's, I think of it as fundamentally a communication medium. Like, you know, like you said, you can link from one article to another article. Um, so we're like sort of consuming and creating um, nuggets of communication, whether they're video, audio, or text. What, so when I try to, when I add the third dimension to that, what am I going to be doing or experiencing? Well, so the fundamental premise for many different use cases is that 3D is a more intuitive and arguably better way to do many things that we currently struggle to do online. Education is a great example. Futurists and entrepreneurs have been predicting for decades, truly decades, that the internet, digital software, new devices would fundamentally transform education. And that hasn't really happened. Yes, we use technology in the school more than ever, but it's actually the highest growth cost category in the U.S. economy over the past 40 years since the Internet. We expected that Harvard would come out with an online degree that would have the imprimatur of its in-person experience and yet cost a tenth as much and be available to a thousand times as many people. If we learned anything during the pandemic, it's that Zoom school sucks. Digital multiple choice sucks. Playing a instructor back on YouTube sucks. And that's because we didn't evolve for 2D interfaces to stare at a camera lens so that we can make eye contact with another, but in doing so, we can't make eye contact ourselves. And so if you have 3D, you can immerse yourself into a circulatory system. You can create a volcano not in paper mache with baking soda and vinegar, but actually design it at the atomic level, agitate the magma before being ejected into the atmosphere. And so in many instances, the most exciting answer are the use cases that we haven't been able to figure out in 2D. But in other instances, 
It's just a new forum for how we operate infrastructure. The buildings we go in today are barely online. We have a passcode authentication, a Wi-Fi hotspot, but it's not really on the internet. We'll be in these persistent simulations too, just as examples. That sounds like we're talking about the applications of just really kick-ass VR, but your definition of the metaverse in the book has other uh, criteria besides just 3D virtual worlds. It's supposed to be interoperable with continuity of data and can be and it's persistent. Like you leave and then you come back and things are still there. And I'm wondering, like in the case of virtual school, are 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 we really talking about a metaverse or are we just talking about really awesome VR? Because I'm not sure that you need the interoperability and the persistence um, to do the kinds of cool things that you're talking about for education, for example. So such a good question. You're exactly right, and I'll explain why. It's because this is one of the challenges about talking about the topic. It's a little bit like saying, imagine the value of the internet. You can describe certain applications, content, and experiences, but we know after the fact that it was the network, the interconnection of 40 million autonomous networks. The idea that Facebook isn't just an application for a device on a network in a country. That's what matters. And so you're right to say that we're talking about a 3D experience, a virtual reality experience, if we so choose. But the real value is combinatorial. And that's what really doesn't exist today. It's to say that what you do in this environment has persistence. It's accessible to others. That the objects that are created, designed, used, bought, achieved, have utility beyond. This is the primary impediment in the metaverse today. It's why we have the question around interoperability and new standards. It's one of the ways in which we can identify the metaverse as a successor state to what we have today, because there are so many things that are missing. But isn't that persistence or the potential for that level of persistence an opportunity to be more persistently monetized as consumers. We're having this um, moment right now in our experience of the internet where there is um, maybe some correction that's happening and people are reevaluating their relationships to the internet and how much we want to be online and how much we want our data to be shared and how much we want to be tracked, at least for some people. And so as we evaluate that, how, I mean, what's the driving force behind, you know what, we should just be online more and those online environments should be more persistent because I just keep thinking it has to come back to money. Well, so let me worsen your fears before <laughs> hopefully awesome. making them better. Look, we're 15 years into the mobile cloud social era of computing and networking, however you choose to characterize it. And we still contend with many severe problems Dis and misinformation, toxicity, harassment, radicalization, happiness at large, data rights, data security, data literacy, platform power and regulation, the role of algorithms in our lives and how they shape our behaviors. These are all really important problems. And frankly, platform power and platform regulation, we don't have good answers for those either. The metaverse means that they will get worse, harder, at least. Why? Because it means more of society, more time, more things of more value will go online. In addition, some of the lessons we've learned won't port over quickly. The moderation of static text or asynchronous text into 3D live spaces is a pretty different problem. But let me tell you what has me hopeful. First and foremost, 
We've all learned about disruption, in part due to the work of Wired and others. The largest technology platforms on Earth are rushing to the metaverse because they know what happens in a platform shift. Things change. Leaders change. Business models change. The dominant philosophies of the era change. That means that we have pretty rare agency. It's very hard to change things intra-cycle, but we have agency when there's a new cycle. One of the reasons why I wrote this book was to better educate as to what we need, when we need it, what's going to be built, what the services will be, and what we need from a regulatory perspective so that we as users, developers, consumers, government can actually change that. We actually can determine whether or not we're monetized in which way, when, and how. Um, I, I, I feel like we've, we've raised ahead to some high-level conceptual questions, but I'm still in my mind trying to picture my life as a metaverse user. Um, like I'm just thinking, you know, you talk a lot about games as the as the sort of cutting edge of this and that makes total sense because I mean, for, for one thing, VR gaming already exists. There were commercials for Virtua Boy when I, uh, in the 90s. So that's an old idea. Um, but for this to really have legs, it's gotta go beyond gaming. And I, I guess my instinctive reaction is to feel like I don't think I'm going to want to spend a ton of time in VR. I, I could imagine if I was a gamer, I would. But otherwise, the things that I like to do with my time, you know, read, play the guitar, uh, cook, uh, text Lauren, I don't know that I need VR to do <laughs> that. Priority. So I guess I'm just wondering if you can how much more you can try to like, depict a day in the life of, you know, of a metaverse uh, user. A few things to hit on this. First and foremost, I do my best to understand why this transformation is so significant. And at a simple sense, we can think of it as every time there's a fundamental change in who accesses computing and networking resources, where, when, why, and how, we have large scale change. The fundamental innovation of mobile was not cramming a computer into a smaller device. It wasn't even having constant access to the internet. It's the fact that when you do those things, who accesses computing and networking resources, when, where, and how changes. I use this because there was nothing in TCPIP in the 1990s that clearly answered that question you just asked me for today. The Internet Tidal Wave memo from Microsoft in 95 and then 98 showed that the whole company was corralling around this future of the Internet and then the mobile future. But the fundamental question of what's a day in the life like was actually really hard to answer. Instagram, mm -hmm. Snapchat, really novel. Think about internet identities. Microsoft tried twice to build a federated identity solution for the internet. The .NET framework was the last, but what was the way to do that? It was actually building a hot or not in Harvard that became a social network that is now the de facto identity service globally. And so I'm always reluctant to get too prognosticated. Instead, we can look at more fundamental questions. When you're thinking about virtual reality, I want to reframe that a little bit. Virtual reality actually just refers to any computer-generated virtual simulation. That can be in 2D, 2.5D, 3D, can be augmented reality. What I think you're referring to is an immersive virtual reality headset. That's not a requirement. And in fact, we see hundreds of millions of people each day spending hours each in virtual environments without a VR headset. We see billions of people doing this on a monthly basis. 
it's likely that those are going to be the most popular devices for quite some time. When you look at Neil Stevenson, who coined the term metaverse, he's had this really fascinating observation. He says, when I imagined the metaverse, I did think of it as an AR and VR centric experience. And he highlights that that was a good bet at the time, especially among the tech community. He was surprised to find out that hundreds of millions of people were fine in 3D space with WASD, a keyboard for forward, left, right, and back, that billions of people were okay with the touchscreen. And so what we're finding is that for many people, the devices and inputs that we have today are sufficient. And when you're talking about the share of time, we have 300 million Americans who watch five and a half hours per day of TV, not video. I'm excluding TikTok and YouTube, just TV. The largest draw of time is not going to be from going for a walk, going to get a beer at the pub, going to a concert. It's probably going to be from television, which we do mostly alone. I'm really glad that, Galad, you asked that question. And Matt, that you gave the answer you did because so later this afternoon, I happen to have a VR demo coming up with a popular fitness app in VR. And I think I can say it's supernatural. A lot of people have written about this. Before. Literally never heard of that, but you oh. you do you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and and it's in a head from what I understand, it's going to be in a virtual reality headset. It's limited to 45 minutes, which I'm very grateful for because I'm not quite sure I could handle longer <laughs> than that in a VR headset while exercising. Um, but let's just say the experience was not in a VR headset. Any any app like this, it's not in a VR headset. How is that the quote unquote? Metaverse. What makes that the metaverse? Because what I'm hearing you say, Matt, is not necessarily like you initially described it as it's 3D. But then when you think about persistence and continuity and federated identity, those things are not contingent on three dimensions. No, they're not. And of course, versions of this already exist in the quote unquote 2D internet, right? We do have continuity of various points of data. Your Facebook ID is one, your PayPal account is another good example. Lots of content on the internet is at least technically persistent. Part of that comes from the interoperability of content itself. I can take my website from Squarespace to WordPress. Jeez, I can't Got imagine it. how I forgot that one. <laughs> <laughs> but 3D is generally understood to be a requirement for many use cases, but the elevation of human society at large onto the internet. I think what you're coming up against, Lauren, is, is part of the reality of the fact that these technological waves are actually not as discreet as the names are. Mm -hmm. Take mobile. We clearly understand mobile as different. Different devices, many different companies, different interfaces, some different protocols, some different monetization models. And yet we're still using TCP IP. The devices don't work fundamentally different than a personal computer. More than half of traffic both originates and terminates on a mobile device. And yet all of the transmission is on a fixed line network for the most part. And using TCP IP, I'm speaking to you right now on a personal computer, and that's where I do most of my work. Many things are unchanged. What we think of is the advent of a 3D network, a persistent network, especially in augmented reality and overall, is being different, an elevated form, and certainly unlocking some use cases, like I mentioned in education. All right, we have to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk even more about the metaverse with Matt Ball. All right, welcome back. 
Matt, let's talk about some of the stuff that you wrote in your book, The Metaverse. Galad, I'm going to toss this to you. What's your first question for Matt? So I, it's as I was reading um, Matt, I was sort of getting ready to to pounce on you for not talking about the role of uh, government policy and regulation, but you actually do at length. Uh, so I was pleasantly surprised because not all uh, books about the future of tech actually address that. And um, there's there's a lot of really great stuff in there about. I mean, I was I learned some. I, I write about antitrust a lot, and but I still learned some things about that I hadn't considered about how Apple and Google, uh, you know, run their their app store monopolies, for example. And um, so you talk in the book about basically how that kind of sucks and could prevent the metaverse from being cool. And you also talk about how the original internet was not something that somebody hacked together in their garage, you know, and then launched a startup. It was the process. It, it involved collaboration between academia and a ton of investment from government. And you argue, uh, I hope I'm getting this right, that for the metaverse to deliver on its promise, we need something like that. My question is, have you thought at all, like, is that at all realistic? Because when the internet was being invented, it was, th there was no like monetization or corporate layer there, right? There, there was no such thing as an internet business because there was no internet. But now, as you say, the, the metaverse is going to be built on top of the existing internet and there's it's already super monetized and and corporatized. So like the idea of government-led research and collaboration in developing new protocols sounds really nice. I and I, I'm all for it. I'm struggling to imagine how that would actually come about. So this is a really great point and I'm I'm glad you picked up on that. I do my best in the book to advocate for policy changes and regulations as I understand them. I don't think I'm the best person to talk about them. And so I focus more on what we can know, what we can predict, and hopefully I advance the understanding so that those better positioned can talk about them, especially when it comes to equality and social issues. But the role of government here is going to be important. And I think many, my generation included, are jaded because we feel like regulatory involvement has been non-existent and ineffectual over the past 15 years, especially. Yep. That's actually a new effect. Most technologies in the 20th century, whether that was or 19th century, transportation with the railway systems, the steel industry, the energy industry, telecommunications at large payments, all of the major technological innovations, the government was actually very involved in, and even the engineering Internet Engineering Task Force, which shepherds TCPIP, was created by DOD, which then had the foresight to relinquish that control. It's really the last 15 years that it has been non-existent. But outside of the United States, we see a lot of focus here. The EU has started to shift its focus towards the metaverse. Their think tank released a paper yesterday on the policy implications and recommendations. The chief negotiator, as they established their new overhaul of EU regulations, the biggest ever, is very focused there. The South Korean government has established the South Korean Metaverse Alliance, an effectively compulsory group to drive standards and gate what is and isn't allowed. The U.S., we're mostly seeing efforts from Senator Klobuchar, but I'm hopeful that we're going to see a stronger hand here. But you're quite right to say the internet was not just an unowned platform. 
It was not designed to sell a widget, collect a tracking piece of information, or to advertise. And yet the metaverse is definitely being designed to sell or monetize something. Doesn't mean the philosophies of all the players are identical. Doesn't mean that we would be equally happy with each one. But the organizing principle is unique. So you sound rather optimistic, um, even if that optimism is not necessarily geared towards our regulatory standards here in the U.S., but you sound rather optimistic that there will be interoperability in this metaverse and that we may be able to move away from the 30% standard, right? The idea that platforms like Apple and Google will take 30% for supporting and distributing the software, maybe in the metaverse that won't exist. Um, But it sounds like the regulations don't need to just be around how things are monetized. You mentioned standards as well, because in your book, you write about how in the earliest days of, say, something like iTunes, it would have been impractical for Apple to not use a standard audio format that was industry friendly. But as the internet has matured and mobile internet in particular has grown, so many things are purpose-built. This is what you write, purpose-built, individually optimized, and then standardized differently. There are so many big tech interests here. Do we really think that the metaverse is just going to be like one big open friendly standard? So this is a really good way to talk about why interoperability is a bit of an unhelpful term because we think of it as an interoperable metaverse or not. The truth is interoperability is a question of degrees and use cases. The internet is interoperable, but that doesn't mean there aren't private networks, offline networks. It doesn't mean that there aren't proprietary paid protocols. And it doesn't mean that there aren't paywall experiences or technologies you need to license to access certain versions of one another. The world is interoperable. We have exchange of almost all goods from one country to another, and yet it's not indefinite. I'm Canadian, which is perhaps why I'm more pro-regulation than than most in the metaverse space. Mm -hmm. But I can't come to the United States and do whatever I want. I can't bring $10,001 on a plane. The world has many interoperable standards for commerce. USD, English, the metric system, the intermodal shipping container. But of course, there are many competing standards, and it doesn't mean that you can exchange everything into everything without cost, without imperfections. That's what we're going to see in the metaverse. More likely, a number of competing standards that are each imperfect and inexhaustive, often with bilateral agreements, not the EU standardizing currency, but two different countries, or in this instance, platforms, doing exchange from one another. But we are seeing this effort. Just last week, the Kronos Foundation established the Metaverse Standards Forum. I think 28 companies from Qualcomm to Meta and Epic Games all participating. Now, the easiest thing to do is to get a bunch of people in a room to say, let's standardize. Where it gets tough is where you have to make sacrifices, pick something you didn't want, sub-optimize your performance because of something someone else advocated for, which one? But we're starting to see that process already. And actually, Meta's Oculus system is one of the most open console platforms with that in mind. Yeah, I mean, I was also thinking about this. You you, you write that um, sort of economics will push in favor of openness and interoperability. But that was the same argument that was made in the early days of Web 2.0. And if you go back to that era, Facebook also was pretty darn open and interoperable in its, in its early days as a Web 2.0 
platform and became more closed off uh, basically once it had enough power to do so. So I was a little skeptical of the, well, the economics, this will grow the pie for everyone argument because we've seen that the motive to monopolize is so powerful. But then again, to argue the other side, maybe the best argument for things working out a little differently uh, in the metaverse, such as it is, is that now we're at a moment where regulators are on kind of high alert about monopolization and consolidation. And so that that more than economic inevitability might prevent, you know, either literally Facebook or the next or the would be metaverse Facebook from kind of gobbling up enough stuff to then close their system and, and, and force everybody onto it. I think this is the right frame. This is why you see so much energy in the Web3 ecosystem is the belief that the natural arc of for-profit tech platforms is to rent seat, to capture over time, to translate open success into closed rent-taking or rent-seeking. To what extent that pans out and when is all an open question. And of course, it's really a reflection of how many competitors are there, what do consumers demand. There's path dependency as in how we get there. And then there's regulatory controls. I think this is, again, one of the reasons why I'm optimistic. These companies are working hard, and I detail it in the book, to enshrine different principles early on, not universally, maybe not sufficiently, but at least thus far, they are trying to win in a way that we didn't see before. It used to be about, we have more users, better tech, more money. Now it is a lot more trust organized. And this is interesting, right? Because the Web3 system focuses on trustlessness. You don't need to trust. Right. They hate trust. Totally. But what we're seeing now is actually many of the giants trying to say, here's how we can prove you should trust us. And so I'm hopeful that we'll have some reset. How long does that last? A different question. I think we can simultaneously say, if big tech is strong now, imagine what happens when they own the virtual atoms of our parallel existence. But again, that's one of the reasons why I chose to write the book. It's funny, Matt, because when you describe how some of the big tech companies and Meta comes to mind are trying to put themselves out there and give these far flung visions of the metaverse future um, because they want to earn trust. I also see it as a reporter and as a skeptical reporter um, as maybe in some ways trying to wrest early control, right, of, of what. Uh, this metaverse could look like. Be, you know, if you're an active part of building it, then you get to say, like, here's where we're going to put these walls. But I respect that you are optimistic about it. You are, you know, an investor who's invested in this space. Let's just say, though, that it's not a company like Meta that ends up ruling the metaverse. What's a company that you have your eye on? Maybe few people have heard of it till this point that you think has a good chance of being a, a, a big player in this next version of the Internet. So I think there are two companies. Epic Games is not one known to most people. They, of course, have heard of Fortnite, but they're a clear and important tech provider in the interoperability and real time rendering space. Unity is unfamiliar to almost everyone, but they power between two thirds and three quarters of all mobile games. These are interesting companies because they're organized around essentially two different premises. Number one is democratizing the tools for creation in virtual space as well as operation in virtual space. 
They're not trying to be the sole application layer. They don't try to own your identity. They're just trying to say that we benefit by making it easier for everyone to build better and faster experiences. And that connects to the second element, which is their focus on democratizing tools means that what they are focused on is actually further up the stack, which is getting out of the way at all points, facilitating interconnection between disparate experiences, but also just trying to say, what more can we do for you? And this has led to very distinctive philosophical change differences. I wrote about this a little bit in my book that if you take a look at Tim Sweeney at Epic, he has done two fascinating things with the Unreal license. Number one is their end user or developer licensing agreement provides indefinite rights to that license irrespective of how their policies change, which is to say, Lauren, if you license 4.2.1, they can never change the toss. Now, of course, they can change it for Unreal 4.2.2 or Unreal 5, but what you built your virtual business on, you can trust that forever. They did a second thing, which is they changed their developer licensing agreement such that if there's ever a dispute, they need a court injunction to cut you off. This is a fundamental belief that for the metaverse to thrive, developers need to trust their investments will be respected. And rather than try to come up with their own legal system, they entrust it to democratic and legislative processes. Just like a landlord has to get legal approval to lock you out of your facility, Epic has to do so in the development realm. And so we have these two companies that are not just focusing on democratization of tools, but their whole framework is actually very different from a value capture perspective. If they can crank up the TAM of the metaverse, they benefit. If they can pull it forward, they benefit. And they operate very uniquely as a result. Um, this book, as I understand it, grew out of this nine-part series that you wrote last year. Uh, on your website. So that, of course, is available for free. So what are, what will people, just teeing you up here, Matt, what will people get from the book that's not in the nine-part series? Thanks for the tee up. This book is a dramatic overhaul. It's about three times longer, but the primer itself, which has been entirely redone, is just the middle third. The rest, which was written for about probably 20 times the writing time, professionally edited, supported, many others read it first, it reflects six months of progress, probably 24 months of compressed learning. But there are three other, or three total sections. The first gets into the history of the metaverse. Why are we talking about it now? Where does it come from? It gets into why gaming, a small part of the leisure economy, seems to be at the forefront of the metaverse. It also spends about 12,000 words providing a detailed definition of the metaverse, as well as why we should think of it not just as some of the but a revolution to it. The second part, as I mentioned, is the primer for the most part, but with fundamental overhauls and some supplements. And then the third gets into social questions. What businesses will be built? When? What's the societal implication? What's the regulatory response? And then what can we know and what can't we know until it's here? And this comes out on July 19th. Is that correct? That's right. All right. Uh, Matt, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to ask you, our guest of honor, for your recommendation this week.
All right, Matthew Ball, our guest of honor this week on Wired's Gadget Lab. What's your recommendation? So I have two. One is television. I'm really enjoying The Old Man, which is an FX production on Hulu starring Jeff Bridges, John Lithgow, and Amy Brenneman. And then also the Strict Scrutiny podcast on Crooked Media, especially after the two very signature Supreme Court decisions of the past month. I love the Crooked Media team, but I think Strict Scrutiny is just incredible legal examination with a tinge of advocacy. Um, even though I went to law school, I'm going to ask you about the first one. I've seen a lot of commercials for the old man. So I get a little, a little sad that Jeff Bridges is reduced to, to doing TV, but why? Also, it's a golden age of TV. I, I, I guess that's true. Maybe I shouldn't. I shouldn't look at it that way. If it was an H, <laughs> I would feel better about it if it was like an HBO series. Well, if it was HBO but Max. Can, just can you just yeah. sell me on it like for ten more seconds? <laughs> <laughs> it is very much in the style of Heat, in the sense that you have oh, Jeff man. Bridges <laughs> acting against John Lithgow, with the background context of the Afghan-Soviet conflict. And it fast forwards another 40 years later. But most importantly, and this is the key selling point, he has two Rottweilers that absolutely steal the show episode after episode. And that sells me on most things. Oh, okay. I'm sold. Good dog vision. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's a good one. Thanks for that. Galad, what's your recommendation? Mine, so Matt had two. This isn't even a full recommendation, okay. but it's more of a, I will, I will phrase it as a recommendation, which is, and this will probably also sound really dumb to our very gear focused audience, but I'm not a gearhead. So I was recently visiting a friend and I borrowed his car, which is an, an EV, an electric vehicle. They have those now. <laughs> and not a t it wasn't a Tesla. It wasn't, it was a, a Nissan Leaf, like okay. pretty humble little car. So fun to drive. Because the acceleration on these things is amazing. Um, and it just got me thinking that I don't feel like electric vehicles have been marketed to me uh, on the strength of their funness to drive or their acceleration power. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's all like the, you know, the environmental. Yeah, impact. the virtue you signaling. Sa you save mo yeah. virtue, you save mm -hmm. money on gas, sure. But like, gosh, it was really fun to zoom around in that thing. So I guess my recommendation to listeners is if, if you have not tried driving an EV, you should because you might find that it's just an enjoyable experience. And then maybe my advice to the industry is uh, to lean a little bit more on how much giddy up the cars have and how fun they are to drive. Gilad, doing the work for big auto. Yeah, it's, well, but clean, clean But energy. clean big yeah, auto. Yeah. Um, I really thought you were going to say it was a Model 3. I don't know why. What's that? That, that that was the car that you ended up taking for a spin when you borrowed your friend's oh, car. Is that a Tesla? Tesla. It's, oh yeah, it's the Tesla Model Three. My friend, my friend does well, but he's he's frugal. Well, the Model Three is supposedly the less expensive uh. one. All I know is I think I've dated more people in the Bay Area who have a Model Three than I did when I was had than anyone I dated in New York who had a car. Right, right. You're more likely to have a Tesla here than you are <laughs> yes. to have a car in New York, that's for sure. Yeah, I've been in some Model 3s. Um, anyway, what's your recommendation this week? Oh, wait, was that one and a half recommendations? I think I was I point, think, I think I got to point 0.75. Point 0.75, all right, fair enough. Uh, my recommendation this week is also, as Matt suggested, a podcast. Mine is a podcast from our friends at Prologue Projects. They produce a show called 5-4. Uh, it's about the Supreme Court. And in the past couple of months, the 5-4 team has put together a couple of emergency pods on the overturning of Roe v. Wade. 
They uh, they really do an excellent job. It's a group of lawyers who sit around and talk about some of these Supreme Court decisions um, in a very irreverent and smart way. And so I recommend checking out the 5-4 podcast. Wow. Dueling law podcast recommendations. <laughs> yeah. And we're recommending them to our lawyer pal over here. Mm-hmm. You, sir. I could listen. You could listen to both of them on a nice long drive in your Nissan Leaf, That's which right. has a cruising range of like 250 miles. <laughs> Not your Model 3. <laughs> Um, Matt, thanks so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. I know we've been trying to coordinate this for a while, and we really appreciate you making the time to come on and talk about your book, The Metaverse. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate you guys spending time. And thanks to all of you for listening. We're going to be off next week for the 4th of July holiday, but we will be back on the 14th with my usual co-host, Michael Calori, aka Snack Fight. Galad, thank you so much for co-hosting with me in his absence. My pleasure. It's been really fun. If you have feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter. Just check the show notes. Our producer is the excellent Boone Ashworth, and we'll be back soon. Goodbye for now. Hi, everyone. Michael from Gadget Lab here. I want to tell you about our friends over at The Big Take podcast from Bloomberg News. Each weekday, they bring you one important story from their global newsroom, like how AI will upend your life or why China's targeting the U.S. dollar, and maybe how Joe Biden plans to take on Donald Trump. Oh boy. Check out The Big Take, a daily podcast from Bloomberg, wherever you listen.